Good afternoon, everybody. Oh, it's quite loud. Have to rearrange that. How's that? A little better? Perfect. Okay. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Dr. James Brooks, and I'm the Melanie Trent DeShutter Library Director here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this noontime lecture, which is going to feature Dr. Christopher Graham and his new book, uh, Confessions of a Southern Church, Faith, Race, and the Lost Cause. It's wonderful to see both familiar and new faces here today, and I want, you, I want to thank you all for taking the time to come here and support our institution and the wonderful work that Chris has been conducting. The VMHC acknowledges the Powhatan Confederacy and the Monacan Nation that inhabited the land where the museum now stands. We seek to honor that history and to maintain thoughtful relationships with those indigenous people and all the tribes of Virginia. Their story is integral to Virginia's past, its present, and its future. We also wish to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Anne Worrell, who endowed this lecture series in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. I just wanna run through a couple of upcoming events and notices for you before we get on with today's main show. So tomorrow at 5.30, join us in person or virtually for Building a New Nation, Dismantling Housing Segregation Brick by Brick. This is an exciting event in which the League of Women Voters in Virginia and the VMHC will come together to hold a public forum on the history and impact of past discriminatory policies and practices and how we might work together to mitigate their impact in the present day. On May 5th at noon, so next week, join us for our next noontime lecture, Disaster on the Spanish Main, when historian Craig S. Chapman will speak about Virginia's roles and experiences, or Virginians' roles and experiences, excuse me, in the West Indies expedition of 1740 to 1742 during the War of Jenkins Ear, a war that I'm always uh, incredibly curious to learn more about. This lecture is gonna be sponsored by our generous friends over at the Society of Colonial Wars in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And following today's lecture, as part of our ongoing cafe series, featuring producers from around the Commonwealth, we're gonna be welcoming Soul and Vinegar in the cafe shop. And this is a Church Hill neighborhood deli that offers a diverse selection of food. So please stop in to get a taste, particularly of their banging pimento cheese, and even to take some home today with you. And I have it on very good authority that it's quite fantastic. So you'll see me there as well. Now on to today's lecture. Following the murder of worshippers at the Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston in 2015 by a young man enamored by Confederate symbolism, the rector at St. Paul's Episcopal Church here in Richmond called upon the congregation to examine its own racial history and former identity as the Church of the Confederacy. St. Paul's in downtown Richmond, as we know, had been the home to wealthy and influential Virginians and during the Civil War hosted Confederate leaders, including Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis. The people of St. Paul's built its post-war identity around its Confederate connections. And Chris's book is the result of a congregational self-study and chronicles how this church understood Christian teachings and practice regarding race relations from the 1840s all the way to the present moment. Chris's book helps us better understand the evolution of lost cause institutions, 
while contemplating the ways that people change over time and use historical imagination in the exhibition of present realities. Dr. Chris Graham is a historian, museum curator at the American Civil War Museum, and a present-day member of St. Paul's. He received his PhD in US history from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro in 2013, and also holds a master's in public history from North Carolina State University. He was guest curator for our own reinterpretation of the Hofbauer murals and the Lee statue. And um, he has also curated landmark exhibitions at the ACWM, including Greenback America, which explored uh, the role of money during the Civil War, and Southern Ambitions, which was about how Confederates reimagined or imagined the Confederacy's place in the international community uh, had they won independence. Chris is, of course, the author of Faith, Faith, Race, and the Lost Cause, Confessions of a Southern Church, which was published earlier this spring, 2023, and is the subject of today's talk. So please join me in welcoming Chris Graham. Good afternoon. I have to put my glasses on and look down, look up to see everyone out in the audience. So uh, uh, as always, I have to exp I have to preface all of my talks by saying um, that it's better if I read from a script, because if I don't, I'm going to start droning and it's going to take eight hours. So you want me to look down for this. <laughs> um, so uh, thank you for being here. Uh, the first thing I want to do is uh, first ask if y'all can hear me. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, now, I know we have some people that uh, uh, have an unfair advantage to answer this question, but uh, how many of y'all are familiar with St. Paul's? Okay, most everyone in this room. Thank you. Um, now, what have you heard about it? You, This robe stays quiet. What do you know about it? What's the one thing you know about St. Paul's? Shout it out. Right. Okay. So, all right. So I can uh, skip the first three pages. <laughs> Having said that, yes. Uh, um, Jack Spong, correct. Both of these things you're going to about to get mentioned here. Um, so the past, as it always does, sometimes presents opportunities for misunderstanding and confusion. I want to tell you a story from St. Paul's that I hope might help us untangle some of that. And I'll explain what that is in a second. Um, but first, why St. Paul's? What are we talking about today? Why are we here? And uh, the first respondent, Church of the Confederacy, got it perfectly uh, correct. Um, so founded in 1844 in downtown Richmond, St. Paul's large Greek revival building sits at the corner of Grace and Ninth Street across from the state capitol. And I took this photo last week, um, but obviously that's St. Paul's. If you're standing up front, you can see the George Washington uh, statue that's out there. And it's not very clear here in the, in the image, but this building right here is the Virginia State Capitol. Um, its founding members had largely been wealthy and influential members of Virginia society. And their experience of the Civil War only enhanced, enhanced their sense of themselves as important. The Confederate High Command worshipped there, 
And people of St. Paul's reveled in what famous refugee Judith McGuire called, quote, starred officers of all grades and civilians of every degree, all bending together before high heaven. Of course, those uh, officers and civilians included Confederate President Jefferson Davis and General Robert E. Lee. After the war, St. Paul's embraced those connections. It became a tourist destination, a place to see where Lee and Davis knelt in prayer and where Davis dramatically received the message from Lee announcing the abandonment of Petersburg in the evacuation of Richmond. And in this off-center photograph of the sanctuary, you can see where uh, this is after 1905, I think. Um, you see where someone has uh, helpfully for this picture marked the pew where Davis sat and the pew where Lee sat. Um, St. Paul's vestry in the 1890s enshrines that relationship with the installation of stained glass windows dedicated to the memory of these two men. And just a real quick overview here of these windows, because they're actually not my point in this talk today, but they're ultimately, they're the reasons why we're here. Um, this is the Lee, the window formerly known as the Lee Memorial window. Um, and these, uh, I need to note before, uh, before talking about them, that these, uh, despite, um, despite what you may have heard, these are not intended to depict Lee as Moses and Davis as Paul. Um, there, 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 there's a conflation in other ways because these are allegories, but these are not intended to be uh, Lee and Davis in biblical scenes. Um, so this one uh, honors honored Lee. Uh, it features Moses leaving the house of Pharaoh to go with his benighted people instead of enjoying the glory and prestige of marrying Pharaoh's daughter. It is an allegory for the story of Lee himself declining command of the U.S. Army in favor of going with his Virginia, which in hindsight was a fateful decision that committed him to a doomed cause or a lost cause, you might say, um, thereby making Lee's decision that much more honorable. This uh, window honored Davis. Uh, it features the Apostle Paul pleading his case before Herod Agrippa. It and Agrippa admitting that Paul had done nothing wrong and had made a compelling argument for Christ. It is an allegory of Davis's post-war life, during which he was held briefly in chains and spent the remainder of it unapologetically claiming that the slave states had done nothing wrong, thereby making his position standing up for the beliefs in the face, standing up for beliefs in the face of condemnation uh, that much more noble. Uh, and this is meant to reinforce for the people of St. Paul's that they, too, were honorable and noble in spite of Confederate defeat. And maybe even because of Confederate defeat, because everyone loves to have a persecution complex on their side, especially when they believe they're right. Um, the people of St. Paul's uh, spent the next century deeply entwining um, their identity with that of the lost cause. Uh, everyone, we're in Richmond, Virginia. Everyone's familiar with the lost cause, right? Say yes. Yes. All right. Uh, for my cousin Mark, who is watching from California, uh, I will say the lost cause is the Confederate explanation for their own motivations and experiences during the war in which they attempted to downplay the place of slavery, uh, portray their motivations as pure and it, and describe Reconstruction as a terrible 
uh, mistake in multiracial democracy. That's the short version. Um, they installed further memorials and held regular rituals like funerals of famous ex-Confederates and birthday observances of those same men with the flying of flags. They established guided tours that facilitated the veneration of Lee and Davis, and they advertised themselves as the church where Lee and Davis worshiped and as the church of the Confederacy. And this picture on the right is the um, only photograph we know of that shows the church flying a Confederate flag out front. And it was on 1954 on the occasion of uh, Richmond Light Infantry Blues uh, annual anniversary. Um, there's actually one other photograph uh, showing this scene, but it's the same scene, but just same day, just from a different angle. Um, the thing is that identity as the Church of the Confederacy had largely faded by the 1990s, and for reasons that I'll explain later. The windows and the plaques faded into the background, and the regular rituals quietly ceased. By the early 21st century, St. Paul's had become an entirely different church altogether, uh, one known as the home of a liberal and activist congregation. And so that's why the congregation was kind of surprised in the week uh, after the 2015 murders of black Christians in Charleston, when the rector at the time, Wallace Adams Riley, called upon them to conduct a searching inquiry into St. Paul's Confederate connections and to reflect on what that history meant for the church now and its ability to become, to be a welcoming place for all people. And long story short, uh, this is the book that resulted from that inquiry. And that's the, not the only thing that the inquiry History and Reconciliation Initiative produced. Uh, there are other publications, and uh, Beth is the author of one of them right here. And um, uh, I hope it sees the light of day publicly at some point. Um, and there were other initiatives within HRI, but since we're here to talk about the book, this book is the is the result. Um, and you'll have to buy the book and read it to get the whole story. Uh, but let's get to that one story that I started by mentioning that might could help us overcome barriers to a more honest understanding of the past. In reviewing St. Paul's racial practices in slavery and in segregation, we're not going to find bloodthirsty racists of popular imagination. Instead, we're going to see a community of white people who framed their interactions with black people as expressions of love and regard. And so how do we understand and interpret historical expressions of loving racial paternalism by white folks? How do their expressions of love for black people help explain the world that they shaped and the world that we live in now? I can only kind of answer half of that question. <laughs> um, this is important because we see the rhetoric of good interracial relationships quite often in regard to the American practices of slavery and segregation today. Um, how many of you heard of uh, or wondered about good masters? Yes, some of you heard that phrase. All right. Um, how many of you heard of slave owners who lamented the fact of slavery? Yes. This might be a less known one. Uh, Robert E. Lee, his, one of his uh, best known quotes is him seemingly lamenting slavery. That's not actually what he was talking about, but it's quoted often in his defense. Um, and how many of you heard of white families who regarded their black maids as part of the family? Yes. And how often are each of these cited as a way to blunt the impact of white supremacy? 
or to deflect our attentions from the historical systems that these very same white people intentionally constructed. Yes, you've heard that. I've heard it. And that's why taking their sentiments seriously matters because understanding them on their own terms and their own context will help demolish these defenses and contribute to a more honest history. So let's start with pro-slavery Christianity. St. Paul's and nearly every other Southern white church practiced pro-slavery Christianity. Have you heard this phrase? I'm in the, I, I, I keep calling back to my teaching days when I have to say, you heard this phrase, students, raise your hands so I know you're there and know you're paying attention. Um, uh, pro-slavery Christianity, in short, if, if you've ever heard me speak, this is all I talk about, so you, if you've been in a room with me speaking before, you've heard this one. Um, it's a biblical justification for slavery. But I want to get beyond the mere justification argument and get to what that meant for pro-slavery Christians on a daily basis. It's a program. By that, I mean initiatives. It's an initiatives undertaken by white denominations to bring black people into white churches and tutor them in what the white folks regarded as proper Christianity. The Episcopal Diocese of Virginia began to take it seriously in the 1850s. Uh, for them, that meant the establishment of Sunday schools for black people and for figuring out ways to get black folks to attend white churches. They called it the missions of the colored people or the missions of the slaves, or in this case, uh, religious instruction of the colored people. And yes, a big lesson uh, from white Christians is obedience. Um, but I've read enough of their commentary on this to understand that saving souls was a genuine motivation here, and they took that seriously. And I'll get to, and your soul could be saved if you're obedient to your masters. Um, I'll get to Sunday, I'll get to the Sunday schools in a second. Um, but in regard to attracting black people into white churches, we have this interesting moment in Richmond in 1859 and 1860, in which white Episcopalians who desperately wanted black people to come to their churches were disappointed that black people did not want to come to their churches and didn't. Um, instead, they flocked to Methodist and Baptist congregations. Um, these Episcopalians wondered why and ultimately concluded that black people didn't feel at home in white churches because of segregated seating and communion practices. And they were right. But they were unwilling to breach racial protocol to create a welcoming worship environment. Instead, they decided in a meeting that included St. Paul's representatives, and that took place, I think, in St. Paul's Undercroft. Is that right? Yes. Um, to establish an Episcopal parish just for black people in Richmond. And that is the origins of St. Philip's, the church that is still a uh, Episcopal, black Episcopal parish in Richmond. Uh, St. Paul's hosted a Sunday school for black students in 1847, uh, but didn't otherwise uh, do so. Uh, it was actually St. James, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw St. James into this, um, that had a very robust Sunday school program for black people. And here's how one of their teachers put it in 1859. And uh, this teacher is Sarah Valentine, and she's 27 years old at the time she wrote this. And um, if you're thinking of the Valentine Museum and the Valentine family, yes, she is, uh, she is one of them. Um, and this uh, sorry for the poor quality of this photograph of the portrait of her that Valentine owns. Um, so anyways, she wrote 
to her brother, Edward Valentine, who uh, created a lot of, uh, uh, who, who sculpted many of the uh, Confederate memorials after the war. She said to him, God hath in a mysterious union forever united the master and slave. Man may not, man cannot put them asunder. Uh, when the great day on which all hearts shall stand revealed arise, we shall not tremble at the thought that we enslaved our brother. But if we had neglected to observe the meaning of that providence that led us thus to act, then shall we find ourselves indeed unprofitable servants to the best of masters, God that is, um, irrevocable then will be our doom. What she meant by, quote, that providence was that white people had an obligation to care for black people and that slavery was the God-given vector of that care. In return, black people were obliged to repay that care with obedience. It was to them, the white authors of this, an organic relationship meant to ensure the happiness of all involved. In the book, I call this the sacred obligation, and they really believed it. This isn't just a, a mask for nefarious purposes. They actually believed this to be the, the, the real situation. Importantly, 19th century uh, Protestants uh, liked to measure the status of their spiritual life through their activity on denominational issues. If a church does things like raise money for missionary work or engage in temperance activity or have Sunday schools for black people, that's a sign that God was working among them. If they're not doing these things, it's a sign that they are in spiritual trouble, that their very souls are at stake. Being engaged in these kinds of racial relations became a marker for these people's spiritual identity and well-being. And you don't have to be a slave owner to believe this. Clergy and lay leaders framed it like this. We are, I'm faking a quote here, but this is how they generally do it. We are training up these helpless people for civilization, no matter the cost to us. It is our Christian duty. And they meant it. They really did. And now I'm not saying they're right. <laughs> Obviously they're wrong, but um, they meant it. Um, and abolitionist threats to undermine slavery was tantamount to the undermining of God's will. And this does a couple of things. It frames black people as childlike and dangerous and incapable of achieving white markers of civilization on their own. It frames white people as selfless in making the attempt. It places white people as the real victims here because, they said, abolitionists condemned them for slavery but had no intention of performing the same care themselves. And they, they frequently referred to abolitionists as philanthropists or one note philanthropists and you can hear the sneer come off roll off their tongues when they put it that way and it's uh, very similar to uh, someone calling someone a uh, bleeding heart liberal or the same way as uh, today they might say that uh, these abolitionists are really uh, infected with the woke mind virus aren't they um, and uh, here's the thing emancipation destroyed slavery but it did not destroy this narrative of racial difference in this white approach to paternalistic race relations. I want to fast forward two generations and uh, tell you a story about St. Paul's in 1925 that exemplifies the enduring power of this historical imagination of the lost cause and the sacred obligation. 
In that year, Robert DeMille died. DeMille had been the sexton at St. Paul's, and uh, for the non-Episcopalians here, sexton is the custodian or janitor. Um, and Robert DeMille was a black man, and the people of St. Paul's loved him and expressed their love by hosting his funeral at the church. Uh, Mr. DeMille had been a member of uh, Ebenezer Baptist. Um, at the funeral, the vestry allowed a remarkable situation. All of Robert DeMille's friends and family were invited to sit in the main part of the sanctuary, the lower level, while the white folks moved themselves to the galleries above, a complete inversion of the usual seating order. Um, they even allowed Junius Taylor, the rector of St. Philip's, to preside over the service. DeMille meant that much to them. And the white folks were awfully proud of themselves and couldn't stop talking about their benevolence and outpouring of what they regarded as love for their, quote, faithful servant, and by extension, all black people. The Times Dispatch memorialized this when it wrote, this is uh, not from, this is just a headline, this is not what, I'm not reading from this one at the moment. Um, the Times Dispatch said, they say the war between the states was fought to preserve slavery. They say the South hates and is cruel to the Negroes. They say that true freedom and true kindliness are to be found by the Negro only outside the South. Remember, this is the same time as the Great Migration from the South to the North is taking place. Without bitterness and without spleen, it is asked, can there be hatred and cruelty and oppression here? When in the capital of the Confederacy, in the church which was its chief temple, an old Negro man who had died in service draws together at his death the very flower of the South to join in sorrow and in hope to do him honor. Unquote. And here's the thing. What went unsaid in the Times-Dispatch editorial was anything about Robert DeMille other than his status as a faithful old Negro. And I'm for, if you can't see, I got my, uh, got my air quotes up. As a servant. Born enslaved in Northumberland County, Virginia in 1852, Robert DeMille enlisted in the United States Army in 1876. He served in the all-black regiments popularly known as Buffalo Soldiers in the American West. After he left the Army, DeMille worked as a day laborer in Richmond in 1900 and lived with his wife, Fanny, and daughter, Charlotte, and Jackson Ward. Charlotte married a dentist. Though he worked at St. Paul's for 17 years, the church rarely referred to him in staff rosters by his full name, but simply as Robert. When the editors of the Parish Register did list his last name, they spelled it wrong just as often as they spelled it right. When the newspaper mentioned the funeral, they had never mentioned his personal biography, and some articles uh, didn't even mention his name, just the fact that he was a faithful servant to St. Paul's. The white folks at St. Paul's loved him precisely because he was deferential. It did not bother their senses of themselves as generous superiors. This funeral gave these folks the standing to celebrate their own self-proclaimed racial benevolence while not even once paying attention to the actual lives of black people. And you see this in all kinds of venues. This isn't the only instance of this sort of thing in Richmond or in the South ever happening. This happens all the time. And we see this in... Uh, different venues, um, notably in the uh, Faithful Servant 
and faithful mammy headstones from the first quarter of the 20th century. And this is uh, Robert DeMell's headstone out at Evergreen. He's very close to Maggie Walker. Um, and it says, Robert DeMell died 1925, 17 years a trusted sexton of St. Paul's Church. The one on the right is Agnes Whedon, who was a nurse to the Ross family. And it's just noted Agnes Whedon, faithful servant of Dr. George Ross. Do we know anything about Agnes Whedon from this? We know who she was a servant to. Um, just in a side note, uh, Mrs. Dr. George Ross was the fundraising chair for the uh, Davis Memorial window at St. Paul's. Uh, this view is not benign. These little memorials, like the big ones that used to be on Monument Avenue, are statements about how the builders defined themselves in the present and how they wished to see the future. These same people were writing the history of slavery and of the Civil War at this very moment. They reinforced the, rate, the historical imagination for these people as white supremacists in the same way that the Lee and Davis windows affirmed their fundamental honor, nobility, and their unapologetic approach to race relations. And I want to get back to Mr. DeMille in a bit, but we need to take a detour through some other critical moments in this decade. This all takes place in a theological generation that practiced what was called the social gospel. Um, and the social gospel, gospel originally emerged in northern cities, and, and it saw the social problems of poverty, poor housing, endemic sickness, and of immigrants crammed into tenements as man-made sins to be overcome by applications of the social sciences of the progressive era. The social gospel's litany of ills included racism. The social gospel held that racial inequities were a result of man's sin. And so think how far we've come. A generation before racial differences, or two generations before, racial differences was ordained by God. Now racial differences could be attributed to man's sin. And I don't want to go overboard on that, but this is a subtle fact. So when St. Paul's joined other Richmond churches in embracing the social gospel in 1911, when it hired Russell Bowie as its rector, they probably didn't realize that their theological grounds had utterly shifted beneath them. Bowie's successor, successor Beverly Tucker, apparently did not recognize the shift or the irony when he preached on the matter of race relations from the Apostle Paul, when Paul said, in Christ, there is no bond nor free, which had been an abolitionist rallying cry in the 1850s, but now was a social gospel motto. Anyhow, St. Paul's took a leadership role in Richmond's social gospel scene by participating in a variety of outreach causes from soup kitchens to hospital buildings. Most importantly for our topic today, St. Paul's members, men and women, lay and clergy, joined the local branch of the Commission on Interracial Cooperation, an organization founded in Atlanta in 1919, and the CIC intended to address problems of race relations by convening white and black leaders together to find solutions to racial friction. And this is where it gets interesting. The ways that white folks' historical imagination about paternalistic race relations collided with their emergent theological understanding of the problems of racism. And this is where Mary Cook Mumford comes in. The daughter of a Confederate veteran, 
and the widow of Virginia's premier white historian at the time of slavery and namesake of a West End public school, I'm sure many of you all heard about. Um, my wife taught there for a minute. Um, Mary Cook was a dynamo of progressive social activism in the 1920s and the 1910s because she laid out her motivation in 1916 at a fundraising banquet for a new social for a new wing of a black hospital here in town. She announced, invoking in the same breath, both the social gospel and the lost cause, that, quote, nothing in the past has occurred to make us see the solidarity of the human race more than movements of this kind. And that's the social gospel, focusing on the unity of the human race. She goes on, they show us that we are our brother's keeper, it is indeed the call of Old Black Joe, I'm coming. And that's the lost cause historical imagination there. When she says Old Black Joe, she's referring to a minstrel tune that featured an ailing black man crying out for help. The sheet music at the time that she said this was then on display at the Confederate Museum just a few blocks from, um, from St. Paul's and also the museum where I currently work. And uh, Mrs. Rippey's in the audience. Uh, Mr. Rippey did a lot in, to get that museum away from this sort of thing. Um, it all works together to reinforce that paternalistic sense that white people had an obligation to care for black people. But they're doing something innovative here. It's not just a rehash of pro-slavery rhetoric. These white people are willing to sit down with black leaders to discuss social problems of the city and their potential solutions, something their grandparents could never have comprehended. As part of the Commission on Interracial Cooperation, St. Paul's members like Richard Carrington here on the left um, worked with black Richmonders like previously mentioned Junius Taylor and also uh, Gordon Blaine Hancock, a sociologist at uh, Virginia Union University and pastor of the I can't remember the number of it, but the Methodist Church on Lee Street that's next to VUU. Um, they work together to conduct surveys about poverty, alcoholism, poor housing, and recommend legislative solutions. And this brings us to a point in the 1920s where the people of St. Paul's actually oppose the increasingly draconian residential and public segregation laws proposed and passed by the city of Richmond and Commonwealth of Virginia while Beverly Tucker, the rector, regularly preached anti-Klan sermons from the pulpit. And this leads to St. Paul's hosting a bunch of race relations days, which was a, a program of the CIC that um, about every other meeting they had at St. Paul's um, in the 1920s and 1930s, where biracial congregations met at St. Paul's for symposiums on topics like the impact of the Great Depression on black farmers and white farmers, or what could black Richmonders and white, white Richmonders find in the New Deal that would be useful to alleviating the depression in their own lives? Um, nationally known black leaders frequently spoke at St. Paul's, including William Moton, the successor to Booker T. Washington, and Charles Hamilton Houston, the dean of the Howard University Law School and the architect of the legal aspect of the modern civil rights movement. One observer noted how odd it was and marveled that it would be akin to seeing Frederick Douglass and Jefferson Davis take the stand together. Now, this sounds nice. 
and reason for hope, but let's not forget our paternalism that we're operating under here. Here's how Rector Bowie put it in 1926. Any race that tries to save its own soul and at the same time tramples on the soul of a weaker people shall lose it, their soul that is. And the only race that shall save its soul into the glory of an expanding life is that race which reaches out its hands to lead another up and on. Like pro-slavery Christians before them who lamented the evils of slavery and invited black people to church, they're not doing it to end slavery, but to make slavery work according to their ideals. Our St. Paul's people in the 1920s never once considered that racial segregation itself might be the problem. They really, really, really wanted racial segregation to work. And to do so, it had to manifest the equal parts of separate but equal. Thus, I spent a great deal of time going to city council to advocate for things like streetlights and sewers and new housing in black neighborhoods for two reasons. One is because they're motivated by a sense that they have an obligation to help black people. And the second is that they're not interested in black people seeking to live in white neighborhoods. If you give them what they need to be happy over there, they won't try to come here and live amongst us. Ultimately, their inability to, inability to attack segregation itself or interrogate their own racial assumptions led by the late 1930s to a general black withdrawal from the Commission on Interracial Cooperation. And uh, I need to go back. This is the executive committee of the Virginia branch, Virginia division of the Commission on Interracial Cooperation. And um, Gordon Blaine Hancock is up here. And one of these two women is Rosalie Archer. I can't remember which one. Um, but they are uh, meeting for when Beverly Tucker uh, went off to become the Bishop of Ohio. There was one final service they gathered at St. Paul's, and this is on the front portico of St. Paul's. Okay, so here's where the historical imagination and paternalism collides with and overpowers the liberal tendencies of the social gospel. Robert DeMille's funeral took place simultaneous to white agitation over an incident at Hampton Institute, the black college near Norfolk. There, Hampton ushers seated the wife of Scott Copeland, Walter Scott Copeland, editor of the Newport News Daily Press newspaper. That's a handful to say. Um, uh, seated his wife next to black attendees in a mixed audience for a student dance recital. Copeland compared the DeMille funeral and the Hampton Institute incident noting what he regarded as the appropriateness of segregated seating at St. Paul's compared to the mixed audiences, that's his term, mixed audiences at Hampton. He wrote that, of course, quote, no well-bred Virginian could hate the Negro. The funeral of the colored sexton in St. Paul's was a special occasion, and the tribute to him was understood by both Negroes and whites. It was quite in accordance with our time-honored customs, and those that approved of the Hampton Institute's mixed audiences clearly, he declared, do not have the Virginia instinct. The Virginia instinct that insisted that knowing one's role in society was important, 
the Virginia instinct of deference along class and racial lines, the Virginia instinct that Robert E. Lee exhibited when choosing loyalty to his home, the Virginia instinct that Jefferson Davis, by adoption, uh, maintained when insisting that they had done nothing wrong, and the Virginia instinct that drove white Richmonders to advocate for affordable housing for black Richmonders, but refused to see them as human beings with full and complex lives. Copeland's outrage and his leveraging of St. Paul's historical imagination contributed to the passage of the Public Assemblages Act, also known as the Massenburg Bill in 1926. That act strictly enforced segregation in all public events and venues in, in Virginia. And it was one of the most extreme segregation actions by any state government during the era of Jim Crow. The CIC members at St. Paul's may have found the act unnecessary, but they did little about it and likely enjoyed that they had been praised for embodying the Virginia instinct. Like in 1859, when Richmond Episcopalians caved into racial conventions when their Christianity was calling them to worship equally with black people, the folks at St. Paul's caved in again in 1925 to serve the racial conventions of their own day when their gospel was challenging them to do something else. St. Paul's real racial liberalism and tentative grasp of the social gospel was easily overcome by the historical imagination of the lost cause and the Virginia instinct that the church's memorials proclaimed. Histories and how we tell them have real tangible consequences. Okay, so we've seen some slow changes here. Though the people of St. Paul's were still racial paternalists and segregationists in the 1920s, the context of their actions was so remarkably different from 1860 in that, one, they were willing to work with black people on social problems, and two, their theological view of race relations went in two, two generations from slavery as something God endorsed to a theology that pressed them to think of racial friction, if not segregation, as a man-made sin. These things keep happening. Theological contexts change. World War II and the Cold War led to for a forceful human rights or universal theology among mainline churches that condemned racial divisions as racism outright. And secular realities forced change as well. The civil rights movement compelled white mainline Southern churches into uncomfortable tension between the human rights theology and their historical imagination as white paternalists. St. Paul's didn't do so well in that generation. That's chapter four or chapter five in the book. <laughs> I can't remember. Um, but we can see change happening nonetheless in small and large ways at the church. And I'll mention two examples. This is not the image that I was hoping to find for this. I Searched high and low, couldn't find the right one. Uh, but this is just as good. This is a, a meeting of the Men's Association in 1948 in the Undercroft of St. Paul's. And uh, aside from them all looking like, uh, who's that Secretary of Defense in the 1960s? McNamara. They, they all look like McNamara, which distracts me. But um, up in the corner is a portrait of Robert E. Lee kind of overseeing whatever it is they're talking about. Okay, so parishioner... Ann Hobson, now Ann Freeman, uh, developed a critical detachment from the lost cause worship of saintly Robert E. Lee. 
On a Saturday night in 1948, a drunk off-duty sailor broke into St. Paul's and punched his fist uh, through several stained glass windows. The Sunday morning service commenced before the sanctuary could be entirely cleaned. Young Miss Hobson, who said she had been conditioned to see Robert E. Lee, quote, as bloodless and symbolic as the statues that he that we saw all over town, unquote, entered to find a scene of bloody smears on the pews, prayer books, and glass shards from the broken windows on the floor. She immediately recalled newsreels of bombed out cathedrals from the war in Europe as she glanced at a man opening a blood-soaked hymnal. And I'll let her take it from here. Quote, as I stood there, horrified, staring at that hymn book, I was struck by an almost unbearable, and this is from, I'm sorry, this is from 1979 she wrote this, so it's some, with some reflection. Um, I was struck by the almost unbearable knowledge, the knowledge that war, any war, means not just statues and hero saints or even broken glass. It means mainly bloodshed, dark, red, human blood. From that day on, I began to notice something I had missed before in General Lee's ubiquitous post-war photographs and portraits, and even in the statues, an air of almost indefinable sorrow. As I grew on through World War II, and then Korea, and then Vietnam, as an adult, I came to see Lee more and more, not as a god or saint, but simply as a man, a world-weary, prematurely old man at that. Anne Freeman still empathized with Lee to some degree, but she had completely demoted him from saint to man in her estimation. In those changes, those slight cracks, uh, you can see possibility creeping in. So it's no wonder then that Anne Freeman, as an adult, hosted what might have been the first private political fundraiser in a white residence by a white Richmonder for a black candidate for political office in this city. And that was uh, Ferguson Reed in 1965 running for the General Assembly. Whereas Mary Cook Mumford's Confederate father could not have imagined sitting down with black people like she did, Mary Cook herself probably could not have imagined raising money for black politicians in her own home. It's painfully slow, too slow, especially if you're on the receiving end of this. But it's a significant process, progress just the same. The second um, factor in significant change at St. Paul's was that in 1969, uh, the vestry hired a young liberal rector, the previously mentioned John Shelby Spong, who later became well known as a bishop for his advocacy of uh, women ordination in the Episcopal Church, female ordination in the Episcopal Church, and his later advocacy for uh, gay rights in the Episcopal Church and his searching, his, his theological writings, uh, his popular theological writings as well. Um, Jack Spong didn't have time for the Confederate flag at St. Paul's. He discontinued its regular appearance at the church. More importantly, he did two other things. First, he began a remarkably popular evangelization program that livened up the preaching and drew in scores of young people young people that tended not to be longtime members of St. Paul's, not to have roots in Richmond or Virginia, and to not have any pre-existing fealty for Lee and Davis. They came because the rector of St. Paul's preached a theology that made sense to restless and skeptical young liberals seeking a church home at the end of the turbulent 1960s. Secondly, 
Spong initiated an enormous outreach program uh, using the church's income derived from the parking garage, of all things. Oh, if uh, if you go to St. Paul's now and pay to go to park in the parking garage uh, beneath it, your money's still going to a very good causes. So uh, keep that in mind. Um, this The Isaiah program uh, helped address problems of poverty in Richmond, was intended to help address problems of poverty in Richmond. And over the years, this program and its offshoots became intentional in attacking the problems of racial disparities in this city. By the mid-1980s, St. Paul's attracted members not because of its Confederate history, but because it was a church devoted to finding solutions to social ills and doing so conscientiously without the paternalism of the past. And that's the St. Paul's that I know today. And I think some of those individuals are here in the audience. So I hope I, I hope I did you right. Okay. So one of the big takeaways here. Uh, you, you'll, you'll take your own meaning from reading this book when you do buy it and read it, all of you, right? Um, but these are some of the things that I've noticed. And I haven't really figured out how to articulate these very well, even though I've been preparing for this for three months, I still can't get it right. Um, first of all, we must view historic expressions of white regard for black people as the complex things that they were. I believe they meant it. I also believe that they meant it because it affirms their sense of racial superiority. I also believe that when they acted on it, it produced more racial harm than good. So when someone talks about good masters or harmonious race relations, they're not talking about a historical reality. They're talking about how historical white supremacists imagined themselves and memorialized themselves. Second, one of my second takeaways is that change happens whether you want it to or not. Um, I, man, I went to PhD school to come to that conclusion. <laughs> History doctor school, and that's my big takeaway. Change happens. Um, the contexts that guide us today are not those of 1860, 1902, 1969, or 2001. Identifying those contexts, whether theological or secular, help us articulate our own context better and to help us realize that the ways we do things now are not timeless and that good things can come from change. And the third thing is, I home in on those moments when our values reinforce one another, when they really should be clashing. It happens too often, but we never see it. And it causes me to try to sit back and think about kind of where I am in the world and what are the values I hold and do they really mutually support each other? Or are they really calling me to do something radically, remarkably different? Um, how can we see through our good intentions to witness the harm they might be causing? I style, you know, for example, I style myself as a liberal do-gooder. Um, I live in the East End uh, of Richmond, um, but I mean, I like living there, but it also means I'm a gentrifier, and I don't know if that's a good thing or not for me or for the neighborhood I live in. Uh, segregationists at St. Paul's in the 1920s felt the same way, and this fact from history haunts me every day. Um, and I hope it haunts you, too. So that's a hell of a way to sell a book, isn't it? Um, I could say, I hope it inspires you as well. Um, in that imagining what historical memory, how it, how it frames and shapes your uh, sense of um, what's possible in society and 
how you root your values. Um, you can see the past in a variety of different ways. Um, and I hope that it challenges you and it provides you with opportunities to overcome those moments where, where your internal values might clash and you don't even see it. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's what, that's what I'm going with. So um, I just want to point out to end this is that uh, St. Paul's in 2020, excuse me, since 2016 has been uh, removing and or obscuring some of the more blatant lost cause expressions in its sanctuary. In 2020, it removed the uh, plaques to um, the Davis family and one other family that had a small um, non-existent connection to the church um, and, and installed uh, an art piece called the Stations of St. Paul's that is a uh, paper cut art. And this is one example of how many, 16? 14 pieces that during uh, certain seasons of the church life uh, will be hanging in the church. Um, and the artist is Janelle Washington. Uh, they're amazing. And they, they accompany a, uh, what do we call it, Gwen? A prayer. <laughs> it's, it's like Stations of the Cross, but it's not the cross, it's St. Paul's. And it forces us to come face to face with different generations of uh, kind of the racial history of the church. Um, and these are these will be up from time to time. And uh, check St. Paul's social media for next time they go up uh, and be sure to visit. They are astounding, amazing pieces of art. And Janelle really knocked it out of the park. So, um, OK, I am going to end it there. And uh, if there's a moment for questions to talk about this. I'm happy to happy to talk about it. And I, I have uh watch out because Beth and Gwen, I'm gonna call on you probably when I get stumped. Uh no. Uh she's not. Um Ann Freeman is still with us. Are Ann, are you in here? Oh man, she's great. I love her. Oh, two things. Thanks for the book, and then thanks for the church for doing what they did. And Hancock, he was pastor of Moore Street Baptist Church. And you. then another little interesting thing, when you put up the thing about Lee Street uh, Methodist Church, mm -hmm. I'm very curious that they allow people to enter through the front door, but because the neighbors were white and was a black congregation, they couldn't go through the front door. But uh, my question is, uh, racism, segregation, all is very deeply theological. In other words, uh, it just gives you the privilege, the God-anointed thing to do this. And so I see the untaught process happening at St. Paul's. But how do we get this theology that's been taught in our educational institutions, our religious institutions, and enforced by culture. How do we change it? Because we saw after the Civil War, the Ku Klux Klan, and now we see the white Christian nationalism movement because it's never been untaught. How do we deal with it? I don't know. <laughs> That's an extremely difficult question to answer. Um, I think I, 
trying to think about the, about a good way to answer this is um, or respond to this, and I would certainly invite uh, Gwen and Charlie to speak to the theological aspects of this as well. Um, and uh, Charlie's our rector at St. Paul's now. Gwen's the assistant associate rector, um, and I'm a historian. I'm not a theologian. I can't speak to that. But um, one of the uh, one, one of the things I notice as a historian, and, and it was kind of a big theme in this in in this talk, was that the things we're not paying attention to these theological and these historical contexts. Uh, change things in the ways in ways that we're not looking to change things. And so, you know, a massive crush of Eastern European immigrants into uh, the northern United States in the 1880s and 1890s produces the social gospel. No one working on race relations in the 1920s or, you know, at any point in the history saw this theology coming from a utterly different direction that's going to come in and reshape their experiences and their expectations for the world. The same with uh, World War II and the Cold War in American churches are championing championing a theology that stresses um, the unity of man, um, that stresses inherent rights that are due to all people. And for segregationists who are operating in the late 1940s and early 1950s, even out of St. Paul's, they're not looking to think that World War II or the Cold War is going to utterly turn their world upside down, uh, but it does. And so uh, from a, the, the big historical perspective on that is, is to be open, I, I don't know, be open to the world and, um, and see how things are changing and embrace that change and let the opportunities for change challenge you. Um, that's... I, that may not be a great answer. I'm, <laughs> you really stumped me on that one. Thanks. <laughs> um, the uh, the Lee Street Methodist, and I'd be happy to talk further about that if that, if that wasn't satisfactory. Uh, the Lee Street Methodist thing is interesting because it was, tell me, tell me if I get this wrong or right, Beth. In the 1920s, when the city was um, establishing residential segregation ordinances, it was, it was along the lines of a block that is occupied primarily by white people cannot black people cannot move onto that block um and and vice versa although no white person was trying to move into a black neighborhood um but what that meant was that and this is blocked by street level and so uh lee street methodist uh sat with its front entrance uh facing lee street which was a help me beth uh, predominantly, and it's kind of where the where the uh, the Coliseum is now, and uh, it um, and so they, they it shifted from a white church to a black church. It got sold, and the white people said this is a problem because we can't have a black church on a white block. And so what they did was they changed the entrance to the church to a block facing the other way, which is on a predominantly black block. Is that, is that right? Yes. Does that sound right? That it's ridiculous. Okay. St. Paul's people were involved in that court case um, in enforcing the segregation laws uh, about it. Okay. Yes, sir. I, I wonder if you might be able to comment 
Islamic Christian churches in South America had a much larger slave population, and uh, the response of the Church of England to Great Britain's involvement in the slave trade. You mean now? Uh, historically. <laughs> um, why are y'all stumping me so much? Um, uh, I'll, I'll mention a story from 1863 as an example of how did how did uh, southern white southern Christians view the world versus how did uh, European Christians view the world in 1863 after the in response to the Emancipation Proclamation uh, a group of uh, ministers from across the South uh, met. I'm not sure if they all came to Richmond, but they all signed on to a document that was produced out of Centenary Methodist Church, um, in which they, in which this document said it was called um, a, a plea to the Christians of the world or something like that, and and they said that we are trying in this war to maintain this God ordained relationship between white people and black people with slavery as its center, and that these vicious abolitionists who are tearing it down are only going to produce bloody race war. You need to come to our aid because we don't want that and you probably don't want that either. Okay. And so um, Southern newspapers like, yeah, good, good. Um, Northern newspapers are like, what? <laughs> and European newspapers, particularly in Scotland for some reason, um, read this thing and just lambasted it with uh, just editorials that are like, are you deleted, expletive deleted? Um, are you insane? You're talking about human beings here. It's like, this is not how God wants us to operate. And so um, these uh, white Southern Christians, because of their pro-slavery bent in theology, are completely out of step with uh Christians in the rest of the world, whether it's South America, uh, north of the Mason-Dixon line, and uh, particularly in Europe. Um, and and but that but that kind of gets back also to that sense of the the way the lost cause really kind of uh, cultivates and harbors a persecution complex, um, and they really kind of grab onto that and just like hold it close because um, the res the newspaper responses from churches to these Scotland responses to this document, uh, you know, or, or along the lines of, um, well, you see, that just proves even more that we are right and we are getting our butts kicked because we're right. <laughs> so, so, for those in the back, I made a weird face like, what? Um, yes, ma'am. strange argument that the Southerners were giving, but the North bought into slavery too. They they had a lot of, of their profit um, be, uh, depending upon um, the free labor that the Southerners had. So, yeah. And also, for example, when Tulsa, Oklahoma, after um, the attack, when there's a story about the journalists coming to see from the North to see what was actually had happened, they were met by the white a, a governing group of Tulsa at the station and told about how 
The blacks had, uh, we knew that they had seated guns. They were ready to overcome us. And so we had to do something. They never bothered to investigate or to talk to any black people. They went back and reported it mm -hmm. that way. So the, the North was not clean in this either. Oh yeah, no, I can't, uh, I can't speak to Tulsa, but I can say that um, as with all things, uh, you know, the, the first answer for any sort of question is, uh, yeah, it's complicated. Um, certainly in, uh, in the free states, uh, white churches there and white seminaries there uh, harbored a variety of different views on the matter of slavery and race. And there were certain seminaries um, where theology professors were articulating a conservative reading of, of the gospel that would support slavery or otherwise um, uh, try to keep abolitionist theology um, at a distance. Um, but there were also certainly other uh, white Christians in the North that were adopting a uh, abolitionist theology as well. And, uh, you know, it go goes without saying that uh, black Christians are not North or South doing a pro-slavery gospel. Um, and kind of the best quote out of all this is Frederick Douglass, who says, uh, I recognize the widest difference between the uh, Christ of the Gospels and, and the Christ of the pro-slavery Christians. Um, but what we're seeing in the northern states, in the free states or the non-slave states uh, at this time is, is that beginning in the 1850s, uh, particularly after the Fugitive Slave Act, there is a growing, a rapidly expanding embrace of abolitionist sentiment, or at least anti-slavery and anti-slaveholder sentiment that, that creates a uh, fertile ground for when the slave states secede, uh, those people that are kind of sentimentally uh, wary of slaveholders can outright go into abolitionism or at least outright say that we are against slavery. You know, everything that's happened since April 1861 is just really rearranged the playing field. And of course, you know, we know there's there's still, uh, you know, places in New York City that are that are that in uh, that are attempting to try to find common ground uh, so they could maintain that economic relationship but by 1861 that's it's that conservatism on uh kind of racial theology is really back on its heels and, and is losing power rapidly in the free states thank you so much everybody please join me